I blame my smartphone. The freeway was flooded. I knew about that. So I got shunted onto a side road with half a million other cars in single-lane stop-and-go traffic. I knew about that. But millimetering along in a line of cars being passed by dog walkers was humiliating. So I checked my smartphone for updates on weather, traffic, and bump, I rear-ended the car in front of me. I was going too slow for my car's smart collision alert system to notice. I would have been watching the road if my stupid phone didn't act like it was so smart. Hi, Townies. We are so thrilled to be back with another season of the Townies podcast. We're presenting original stories and now in season two, a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. You heard from Jim Lashley, my neighbor and brother-in-law at the very beginning of the episode uh, with his wonderful technology report. Thanks, Jim. Hope things get better. (laughs) I'm your host, Kim Maxwell. And the stories that you're going to hear today were developed in my writing and performance workshop in Ventura County, California. Just down the road a piece. Oh, I didn't take it. Well, come in and say hello to everybody. Hi. This is Ken, who I'm not sure if you've met before. This is Lenore. You know my girl, Lily. And this is Leslie Paxton. Hi, Chris. It's so good to meet you. Without further ado, in the studio with me today, our first storyteller, the very lovely and talented Quinn Van Oker. I mean, she's a pathological liar and a drama queen to the max, like me. I mean the drama thing, not the lie thing, even though I have been known to pathologically exaggerate, which is totally different. (laughs) Quinn Van Oker, one of my all-time faves. How are you, my angel? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you so much for asking. It is really lovely to have you in front of the Townies podcast microphone. It's lovely to be here. Oh. I'm honored. Oh. Well, um, I have, you know, a few questions for you about your brilliant and fabulous piece, Mrs. Olson's Favorite Angle. Um, the first question I have for you is, do you remember which prompt or which exercise was the genesis of Mrs. Olson's Favorite? I think there were two. Mm -hmm. The first one you actually gave to Nora, Mm -hmm. and it was like, what TV show would you write yourself into? Mm -hmm. And then the second one was something like the thing that makes me most nervous Mm -hmm. or most uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. something like that. And how did the piece then come about? Um, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I remember. Do you did you use the Frankenstein method on this oh, one? Yes. <laughs> oh, did I Frankenstein? <laughs> for for the sake of people who have not heard of the Frankenstein, would you like to take sure. a crack at explaining what it is? So you take all the work that you're thinking of putting into one piece and then you cut it up and rearrange it endless amounts of times <laughs> until it resembles something okay. Ish. Mm-hmm. And then you write from there. Mm-hmm. And it involves actual scissors. Oh, yeah. And lots of tape. Lots of tape. And if you run out of tape, then um, Band-Aids. Mm-hmm. I spent six hours Frankensteining with you for this piece. So. <laughs> was it really? Yeah. I'm a monster. No, it was my fault. You had, like, <laughs> other people coming. I was like, no, I'm staying. <laughs> Sorry. It was one worth really fighting for. Like, I remember this one, you said... You literally called me and told me that this one was absolutely the worst one ever. Uh Uh-huh. Would you care to eliminate? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I just hated this piece Mm -hmm. forever. Just almost until I performed it. But, like, right before I performed it, I was like, oh, actually, this is okay. This is an okay piece. Do you remember what the catalyst was that got you to that place to go, okay, I just have to work through this? Um, Really? I think it was I just had 
written and rewritten so many times that I was just gonna accept it as it was because I was going on in like an hour I was like this is (laughs) it is what it is so well that is an excellent topic uh perfection which is not just um elusive but actually impossible um but that speaks to something like a deadline you know like you had you had to get it done for the show Mm -hmm. and so you did and does that help you produce does having a deadline as a as a writer help you produce oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> Definitely. I will leave it until the very last second if there's no deadline. Mm-hmm. And does it, sometimes does it, I do. Does it help having an audience? Yeah. Knowing that they're going to be there? Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> then I'm like, this has to be actually good. <laughs> <laughs> do you happen to remember when you started writing? I have always liked writing, like essays and stuff in like third or fourth grade, but mm-hmm. I always wanted to be an artist and then very recently like when I was like 13 maybe I was like actually I'm gonna be a writer and you're an excellent writer thank you Mm -hmm. um can you tell me what it is that is different about writing um because you write for school and then you write for yourself but then you also come to the studio and you write as a part of an ensemble can you tell me what the difference is in writing in an ensemble, writing in a community of writers? Um, it's kind of refreshing because you get some feedback that's not your own. Because <laughs> that never goes over well. Um, but for me, I always, I kind of have a flair for drama. But what? I know. <laughs> but excluding that, I find that I like to go just a little bit deeper than I'm comfortable with when there's other people around Mm -hmm. because it's like now's the time to share it. If I want to get it out and get it out in the open, now is the time. Mm -hmm. So, And has your writing stories, this process, and then performing them in front of an audience, has it helped you unpack or uncover or realize things about yourself? Yes, it has. It, one being that I am cr- such a basket case whenever I have to talk to people. And I realized that the first time I did your course, I was so nervous. And I think you remember, it might have been actually the Playwrights Conference, where I was like determined that I was just going to die. <laughs> I was going to like throw up and then pass out. Just right there. Yeah, and now I can talk to humans much better than before. (laughs) Okay, so from my recollection, the genesis of this piece was very dramatic and very heavy. It came Mm -hmm. from some – but you actually consciously chose to have have the tone be comedic. Yeah. Do you remember when and why you you chose that as the vehicle? Well – one of the reasons I love being funny, and I find it's much easier to write funny things and dramatic things, because my dramatic things always sound cheesy, mm-hmm. and then I don't want to read them to anybody. But I, I don't know. I just I feel like it's easier to deal with heavy subjects if you can laugh about them. And also, if other people laugh about them, you realize it's really not a big deal. So that always helps. So it helps when your classmates and your teacher laugh at your despair? Oh, yes. (laughs) I love it when that happens. My favorite thing is when people laugh at something that's not supposed to be funny. It's my gift. Yeah. My least favorite thing is when they laugh at something that is supposed to be funny. So tell me how you see that since this piece started off as the worst piece you ever wrote. Mm Coming back to the studio now here to talk about this, how do you feel about now? Do do you see it differently? Yeah. I actually really like this piece. I just read it this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, I pretty much hate my piece until I perform it. And then as I'm performing it and people are laughing and I, I as you know, do this weird thing where I don't rehearse very well. Yes, I, I remember that. Very monotone. <laughs> and then suddenly I'm on stage and it's like the biggest, like show it's ever been and afterwards when everyone comes up to me I'm like oh yeah I do like that piece actually (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and and does that make you feel like the next time we go to rehearse you want to like cough up (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, seriously, though, the, the whole thing about um, the addition of the audience, about taking yeah. that thing that you've written that you're afraid to put out there in the world, mm-hmm. taking a nice deep breath and handing it off, um, what does that what does that illuminate for you or what does that do for you? I don't know. It's so weird. When I'm performing, it feels like I almost like kind of my like conscious brain like blacks out a little bit mm-hmm. where I'm just like, I don't even, I normally don't remember when I perform. Like I don't remember how I said it, how I was standing, if I was speaking fast. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's weird. It just, but I also used to think that I could never perform like ever. I was not at all anything I would ever do. Mm-hmm. How long ago was that? Like before your class. I didn't want to take your class the first time. <gasps> I was terrified. I was like, I'm not doing that. I was like, I have to perform at the end? No. Did your parents make you? Yeah. <gasps> uh, I'm really happy they did, though. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I'm very happy they did. Yeah. I love the show Little House on the Prairie. (laughs) I have watched every single episode at least once, twice. Okay, maybe three times, but no more than seven because that would be crazy. (laughs) I am about as big a super fan as you can be without being labeled insane. Or questionably, I am past that point. (laughs) Little House on the Prairie is the 70s television show version of Life on the Prairie post-Civil War pre-turn of the century. The story revolves around the Ingalls family. Caroline, Ma, Charles, Pa, Mary, the oldest, Laura, the middle, Carrie, the youngest, then eventually Albert, Grace, James, and Cassandra. They live in a little house on the prairie. In Walnut Grove. There is Miss Harriet there's Miss Harriet Olson and Mr. Nels Olson and their children Nellie and Willie and eventually Nancy. <laughs> they own the mercantile. Then way later in the series, Laura marries Almanzo. He can take a long wagon ride off a short cliff. <laughs> anyway, it is the wholesome show depicting a loving family and a loving community. Even though the show was not great in the traditional sense of the word, or any sense of the word, I love it. It is some quality entertainment, folks. Within nine seasons of television, Charles Jr. died, Carolyn got tetanus and almost died, Miss Beetle let all the kids go out in a blizzard and they all almost died, Ellen drowned, and then Ellen's mom kidnapped Flora and pretended she was Ellen. That was a weird episode. Mary went blind. Mary's husband is blind. There's a blind artist who paints beautiful pictures. And because there are so many blind people in Walnut Grove, there's a blind school too. Which is nice. Except Mary was actually at the blind school when it caught on fire and she almost died. Her son did in fact die, along with Alice Garvey, who was the best character. Laura gets rabies and almost dies. Laura gets scarlet fever and almost dies. It was poison oak. <laughs> Laura gets heat stroke and almost dies while pregnant because she has to water the crops after Almanzo gets sick and goes outside anyway in a hailstorm. Falls down, goes numb, and bitterly and inappropriately names himself Crippled. <laughs> that is the exact description noted on the Almanzo Wilder LHOTP wiki fan page. <laughs> LHOTP is what people in the know call it. Anyway, Mary's husband gets his sight back. Mr. Edwards gets addicted to alcohol. Albert gets addicted to morphine. Mrs. Whipple's Civil War veteran son has PTSD and he gets addicted to morphine. Actually, most likely everyone in Walnut Grove gets addicted to morphine because it's prescribed for every medical condition known to men. Including the plague, which tragically hit Walnut Grove twice. Paul breaks his ribs in every other episode. I feel the main reason for this was so that Pa could wander around the farm doing chores with his shirt off. All I'm saying is it doesn't hurt to direct the same show that you're the star of. (laughs) Aside from the snowstorm, there's also a dust storm, and all the kids at the blind school get stuck in it, and 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 as per usual, one little girl goes missing with only her two blind professors to save her. (laughs) And then Mary and Laura are kidnapped at the blind school. They also use the blind school as a place to contain the sick whenever there's an epidemic, which is basically just a normal Thursday in Walnut Grove. (laughs) Having said all that, I actually have not watched the last two seasons of the show. I am boycotting them because Ma and Pa move away. 
<laughs> so if you think about it, I'm an even more loyal fan than those who decide to sit through two seasons of television that revolve around Almanzo Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> and those who watch the final two seasons, Mom, <laughs> have said they do blow up the entire town in the last episode. <laughs> figured out. I would write myself into the show as Charlotte Ingalls, who is slightly younger than Mary and older than Laura, and of course, this is important, I would somehow manage to be Mrs. Olsen's favorite Ingalls. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, Mrs. Olsen is a superior character. I'm not 100% sure where my love for her came from because she's the actual worst, <laughs> but I have always been drawn to her. I mean, she's a pathological liar and a drama queen to the max, like me. I mean the drama thing, not the lie thing, even though I have been known to pathologically exaggerate, which is totally different. <laughs> and she is constantly doing nothing but judging people. It's like her MO. She's the most prejudiced one on the show. However, in season five, episode 13, Blind Journey Part Two, <laughs> she begins her journey to redemption by befriending a young blind African-American boy. Later in the show, she buys a town and renames it Olsonville. <laughs> so there's that. And I think what blinds her goodness from the world is her gossip. Like, it's actually worrisome that someone could hypothetically talk that much shit about strangers. <laughs> but even with all of that, I know that deep, 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 deep down, she's good. <laughs> there is pretty much no evidence that supports this, except for one episode, season five, episode 23, Mortal Mission, <laughs> where Nels, her husband, has come down with the anthrax. <laughs> second while he is sleeping she thinks maybe he dies and she cries and I think if you are truly as mean as Mrs. Olsen pretends to be you don't feel emotion that deep I think she pretends to be mean because pushing people away is easier than accepting love holy screaming little metaphor on the prairie let's just ignore that so Quinn why do you love little house on the prairie good question let's move along everyone is each other's friends everyone is really good looking especially for prairie folk <laughs> and everything works out. Well, I mean, for the most part, not for the anthrax victims. <laughs> Back to my original point, though. Given my new and ever-increasing positive outlook on life, this show is super refreshing. Almost every illness is cured, every broken relationship mended, and even enemies are actually friends once you scratch the surface. It's a very heartwarming show, and I dare you not to cry when Pa finds Jesus after his adopted son, James, is accidentally shot. <laughs> I'm not even religious, it's just a hella beautiful moment. <laughs> anyway, this brings me to my final point. Everyone seems to be loved by someone. Even Nellie Olson, who is the spawn of Mrs. Olson, eventually finds and falls in love with Percival. And stays with him, even though he is Jewish and Mrs. Olson is convinced he has horns. <laughs> Mrs. Olson is also an anti-Semite, and I'm aware of this. So does it make it awkward that I'm Jewish and she's my favorite character? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's not much I can say about that. <laughs> Except later, she does make peace with Percival, her Jewish son-in-law, in season seven, episode 13, Come Let Us Reason Together. <laughs> Mrs. Olsen has somebody. Nellie has somebody. I have a hard time imagining myself in a relationship. <laughs> it makes me feel nervous that I can imagine myself dating, but I can't seem to imagine myself holding hands with or kissing somebody. I see a husband in my future, but I have no romantic feelings. <laughs> um, I've never even had a real boyfriend. <laughs> boyfriend, screw it. I've never even had a real crush. I used to make up crushes just so I could talk about it with friends. <laughs> Perhaps I feel like no one will ever love me. I don't really even necessarily love me. When I think of dating and relationships, my first thought is, why in a prairie of people would someone choose me? Although someone did choose Mrs. Olsen. <laughs> Nels loves her even though she drives him crazy. I think though Mrs. Olsen doesn't really love herself. I think she thinks she loves herself, but it's more the idea of who she is rather than the reality. Now see, in the show, I wouldn't have to worry about never finding anyone because it would all work out. You know, assuming I don't fall in a well. <laughs> As in season three, episode four, Little Girl Lost, one of my all-time favorites, drum roll please, while helping Laura and Mary find bugs for a school assignment, Carrie falls in a well. <laughs> 
find some purpose for my life, like Mary in teaching, or Laura in teaching, or Ma in teaching. So Charlotte could at least be a teacher, and that's a noble profession. And maybe I would find some incredibly fit and handsome prairie man, like Superman, but with more dirt. I feel like perhaps Mrs. Olsen doesn't feel like she is doing what she was meant to do. She probably wanted to be famous or marry a prince and become ridiculously wealthy, but instead she married Nels, the love of her life. I often regret everything I say. The second it's out of my mouth, I wish I could think of it. Because nothing I say matches who I want to be. I wish this was the kind of person who just said what they thought and didn't think twice about it. Like Mrs. Olsen. Number one example of a person who does not give a flying fuck. Does that always work to her benefit? No. <laughs> she says whatever she wants and she thinks she's right and never is. <laughs> and just like Mrs. Olsen, which is concerning, <laughs> I care a lot about image. I have such a clear image of who I want to be and I just have trouble making it happen. Am I turning into Mrs. Olsen? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but I mean, I judge people, I have a hard time loving myself, and I sit around and do nothing all day, like that last one especially. <laughs> No, I can't be Mrs. Olsen. She's the worst. Am I the worst? <laughs> because I love her, but I don't want to be anything like her. I don't want to be universally hated except for one strange 16-year-old girl. <laughs> I don't want to get bitter and stuck in my own way. I don't want to live my life like her. No, I mean, she may push people away because it's easier for her, but there's nothing I love more than knowing I'm loved. I even want to be Mrs. Olsen's favorite. And yeah, that could be my need for pointless competition, but I think it's more than that. Mrs. Olsen is my favorite character, and I know she's good way down deep inside her. But I want to be everyone's favorite character. Actually, I want to be my favorite character. I think that the fact that I can see Mrs. Olsen's goodness proves that I'm nothing like her. Unfortunately, we do share qualities. But I think I'm going to try and change that. Yeah, Mrs. Olsen, you're fantastic, and I love you. But I'm going to love you from afar. I'm going to love me now. Mrs. Olson's Favorite Angle was performed in December of 2018. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, we've talked about this a lot, is that you struggle with anxiety. Yes. And a lot of the anxiety is the very high expectations that you have of yourself. What are some of the tools that you have developed or used to help you keep your head above water? Well, I mean, sometimes I just ignore it completely. I'm just like, I'm not going to acknowledge that, and I'm going to focus somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But other times, I mean, sometimes I just like to just be in my anxiety fully, mm -hmm. and then someone will probably talk me down, and <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> like my mom or someone mm -hmm. will be like, you're a really big nerd, and this is not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then... I mean, my anxiety is pretty much always pretty superficial about mm -hmm. superficial things, so it, it's normally pretty easy to solve. Mm -hmm. I just, I can't see it. Someone else has to see it for me. Oh, I, yeah. interesting. And does the writing process, does it, getting some of the stuff that you, that produces the anxiety, does getting that on the page help you? Yeah, it does. I like writing it down because I... I'm a list maker, and I like getting stuff out of my head because there's a lot of stuff in my head all the time, 24-7. So I just like writing everything down. I can see it. It's all out there. There's mm. there's not really – and once, I, once it's out, it's like it's not a big deal. Like it's never a big deal. It's always a big deal in my head. Mm -hmm. And are there any – when you are driving yourself towards a deadline, are there any – and like the class show is coming up. <laughs> is there anything that's helpful for you in terms of like just keep driving forward when you're in full doubt of yourself? Yeah, it's normally pretty heavily based on I don't want to – disappoint's the wrong word, but I don't want to like fail in front of other people when it comes to like the show. Like I really love being impressive. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love it when people are like, that was impressive, you're so funny, you're the greatest, all those things. So mm -hmm. I just, it's really based on other people, which maybe is not a good thing, but I 
That's, you know what? Sometimes codependence can be a gift. Like teacher's pet number one over here. <laughs> I'm like, I got to get the best essay that I could possibly get before I turn this in. Hence the title. Yeah, Mrs. Olson's favorite ingle. <laughs> I need to be her favorite. Absolutely. Because I don't know why. Because you got to be number one. Well, of course. <laughs> of course. Pointless competitiveness. Oh, yes. <laughs> Is there... Anyone that inspires you artistically or personally? Um, I mean, my parents are pretty inspirational. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, just, I don't even understand how they get all the stuff they get done in like a day. Like, they're just constantly doing things and it's so effortless for them. That's inspirational. I mean, you're pretty inspirational. Thank yeah, you. definitely high on the list. Thank you, my love. Yeah. And, I mean, also, I, I just I love, like, actresses that are—I like reading actresses' interviews that are older and their experience and experiences in Hollywood, stuff like that, as, as a woman, because mm-hmm. it's kind of—it's changing a lot, lucky for me. <laughs> but I like—I look up to them. Mm-hmm. Is there one or two um, in specific that you would love to be besties with? Oh, man. Well, this is, I mean, so many. A lot of them are dead. <laughs> like, I'd love to be friends and just, like, be besties with Lucille Ball. Yeah. Oh, Jane Fonda. Absolutely love her. Read yeah. her book. Mm-hmm. That was a really weird experience because it was, like, the first time a book was, like, written for me. And I was like, oh, she knows exactly what I'm talking about. Oh. If you had a piece of advice for one of our listeners or one of your friends or one of our many beautiful neighbors here in Ventura County um, about expressing themselves mm-hmm. or moving forward, like how yeah. you struggled with not wanting to perform, not wanting to be seen, and now being having made a lot of progress, not quite on the other side because there's always more work to do. Mm -hmm. What piece of advice would you have for somebody that is really afraid to express themselves in the world? Well, this is interesting because I don't necessarily always take this advice, (laughs) but... (laughs) It's the best kind. I think that for me, the moments in my life when I've been the most authentically me have been the most rewarding because I... Do I have a weird? I like to be as authentic as possible, but sometimes with certain people, it's like harder for me. But like whenever I just am myself entirely, I feel like that's whoever I am, like myself around, I'm the closest with. And I also find like again with the it's not really that big a deal. Like it just kind of helps you, like see that don't take yourself so seriously. Like, other people understand you if you are yourself, but if you're pretending to be someone else, then they can't really understand you because you're not yourself. Kind of confusing, but... Mm -hmm. Do you have a moment that you remember where you felt just completely unapologetically yourself? Yeah, most of the time they're in your class, the ones I can remember. But I wrote a piece about, like, pretty traumatic events that happened in my life. And a lot of people came up to me and they were like, the same things happened to me. Or we understand you. Or you're like, you're not alone. And that was just, it made me really happy. Like, I was crying. (laughs) But I was also very happy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And is there anything that you would like to say that I have not asked you about? Well, I'd just like to say thank you because you created a very special thing and I'm very happy that I'm a part of it. Me too. Love you, Quinn Van Oker. I love you too, Kim Maxwell. Kim, it is rain. Um, oh my God, I got your message about um, wanting to use Till It Shines for the podcast and I would love for you to use that song because I just think that Bob Seger is under underappreciated, which is why I recorded it. Um, uh, you know, and it's just I think his coolest, weirdest song. 
Um, so anyway, I would be honored and thrilled. And um, please go ahead and uh, play Till It Shines in the podcast. Yay. Okay, bye. Take away my inhibition. Resistance put me in the mood. Storm the walls around this prison. Leave the inmates, free the guards. Deal me up another future from some brand new deck of cards. Take the chip off of my shoulder. Every story starts with a blank page. And in my class, we start with a five to 10 minute free write from a prompt. And we would like to invite you, our listeners, to take part in your own free write. I am going to give you a prompt. And if you would like to participate, just hit pause, set a timer for five minutes and go. If you want to go a little bit longer, knock yourself out, but resist the urge to edit yourself. Just keep the pen moving until the time is up. Your prompt is, I wish I were. As I tell all my students, this won't be your final draft. And not every free write will go somewhere. But type up whatever you've written today as is before you edit. Sometimes we say exactly what we need to say when we aren't thinking. Our next and final storyteller is local fairy godmother, Ms. Leslie Paxton. I heard your story and I love it. It's just wonderful. She was it's laughing. So just, I was laughing from the very beginning when you I heard said the that title. You, you heard something about um, uh, the guy not wearing oh, shirtless. Oh, shirtless. Michael Landon being shirtless. Oh, yes, I read that he had special things in his contract about you know not wearing a shirt and also something about his butt. Like they. they <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Yeah. 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 He had to be you know, something about the sh- they, his butt always had to be. Scene or something. It was very, like, cute and tight. They couldn't put it to waste, you know. It was like, make sure you get my good stuff. She would groom me, make me into the kind of girl that gazed coolly at her from photographs and fashion magazines, the young socialite dancing at a ball, a riding to the hunt, 
are posing on a Louis XVI settee. <laughs> I wanted to please her. I really did. The trouble was, I am and have always been ungroomable. <laughs> Hi, Leslie Paxton. Hi, Kim. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming into the studio and hanging out with us townies for the very first episode of season two of the townies podcast. Oh, well, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you so much. Very excited to hear your piece, Royal Pudding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> how are you feeling about it now? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm... Really, so thrilled that you've chosen it, and um, I, I, I tend to sometimes, you know, kind of doubt my pieces, and it's just been wonderful to to have the re- reinforcement and the belief in it, and I really appreciate that so much. So I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that you started off in the industry as an actress. Yes. Okay. Um, I know that you then at some point discovered writing. Um, when was that? It was, I was uh, probably my late 40s. I was uh, feeling um, very depressed. I mean, the acting scene, I was doing small theater in L.A., and um, although I enjoyed it, it also seemed very frustrating for many reasons. And if, and I was walking with a friend. I lived in Venice. We were walking by the beach, and she said, "I I know something that might be really great for you." And there was a writing group in L.A. run by a woman named Nancy Bacall. Um, and she said, "I think you know if Nancy has room for you, I think you would really find this very very good for you." So I did join the group, and what Nancy did was she would give us prompts, uh, and we would write in the group read in the group, and that was it. We didn't follow up. We didn't, we didn't uh, rewrite or anything. So it was just a one-time thing. But what I discovered, and this is what um, I think even more so taking Kim's workshop has really, really uh, reinforced that, is that I was somebody that was so ashamed of who I was who I really was. I mean, I had a sort of surface persona, but when I joined the group, and, and it was, there were amazing women just as there are here in Ojai um, and, and men, but this happened to be all women. Um, I thought, these amazing women feel this way too? They, they have this shame about this? They are insecure about this? Really? Like, I still had that teenage idea that I was the only person in the world that felt the way I did. It was, you know, I, I'm a slow learner, <laughs> a very slow learner. I really am. I'm still learning. Uh, anyway, so um, that, was, that was very interesting. And then um, I, but I wasn't writing, like writing, writing. And sometimes I think if I could, I, if, if, you know, if I have to put down what I am and I'm not acting anymore, and if I want to put down I'm a writer, I go, I, I can't. <laughs> and so, so I, I have this idea, maybe I should just put down, I fill up notebooks. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> well, when did you then, coming from this place of shame, when did you start to feel like your story mattered? Well, I began to feel that when people responded. And I think what the other thing Kim has often said is our stories actually I wish you would say it because you will say it better. <laughs> but the audience is the other part of our story. The people who hear are the other part of our story. And so when people began to hear me in, and respond very positively and I'm still going, really? <laughs> you know, but but it began to— <laughs> I will say that there's very few people that light up like a Christmas tree like you at a laugh. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it is That's a magical true. and beautiful thing to behold. <laughs> I, I, I actually wanted to be—I really would love to be a comedian, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I would say that you are. Oh, would you really? I oh, would. My gosh. I absolutely oh, no. would. <laughs> well, who inspires you artistically? 
Well, um, there are many actors that do. Um, there are many people I know that do. Um, I have many people in my life, I would say you're one of them, um, that inspire me. Um, I like being inspired by the people I know, but also writers, oh, there's so many. I, I'm very open to writers. I appreciate all they do. I, I love, uh, I love I, off the top of my head, I love Willa Cather, for instance. Oh. I just think her writing is so beautiful and uh, meaningful, and mm -hmm. she really touches me very deeply. So um, I can think who else. Um, I, you know, I read this interesting thing from Grace Paley um, that I thought was wonderful. You write from what you know, but you write into what you don't know. Mm. I think that really is a wonderful thing to think about. And I find myself wanting to control it, really wanting to control it, wanting to stick to what I know, because I think I developed the habit as a very young girl of um, hiding, really hiding, because I couldn't be hurt if nobody really knew me. So um, to, to be able to reveal myself in any way has been a big step. And I, I want to say to anyone who thinks that this mm, is an impossible thing to do, to get up in front of people. I, I had acting experience, so it wasn't quite as hard for me to get up. But even so, I, to reveal things that I may not want to be seen, I, I just can't say enough that anyone I've seen in this group with, with the atmosphere that Kim creates that gets up and reveals, and I've heard some of the most personal, most difficult revelations from people, things you would think, really, can you say that in front of people? That's so courageous. And instead of being um, what I would have expected to be, uh, you know, shamed for it, people are applauding. <laughs> They're applauding. And they come out after and they say, that was so wonderful. Thank you for that. And there isn't a single person, I promise you, that you hear that in some way you're not connected to, because we are human beings that are all connected. And that's one of the things that happens in this group. There were three things wrong on the day of the Roxeter School Fair and Horse Show, my eighth grade year, and one thing right. The one thing right, besides that it was a beautiful day in May, was that my design had been chosen out of all the grades for the official poster. I had this great idea. I got some poster paints and poster board at Murphy's 5 and 10, and all around the edges of it, I painted scenes of happy little green worms doing things. <laughs> the boy worms with baseball caps and the girl worms wearing frilly skirts. I pictured them sack racing, trampoline jumping, pony riding, going on hay rides, some of the activities planned for the fair. I put all the information in the center, making the lines wiggly so the words looked as if they'd been written by actual worms. <laughs> At the top, in big letters, it invited people to worm your way to Roxeter. <laughs> Printed copies from a professional printer were in store windows all over Annapolis, Maryland, my hometown. It was early afternoon. The horse show had begun, and I was getting ready for my big event, the high jump. There were only two of us jumping, me and a boy named Byron Rothschiller, who was two grades behind me. As an eighth grader, I found the sixth grade boys so annoying. <laughs> Even so, I felt sorry for Byron because some of the kids called him rat killer. <laughs> I found out later that he was the one who broke Fern Sandrock's grandmother's antique music box that she brought for show and tell and put the pieces in Jimmy Mylander's desk so Jimmy was blamed and taken upstairs to get the paddle. Then I thought he deserved the name Rat Killer. <laughs> I have to admit, he was a good rider, but I was better. 
<laughs> My teacher said I had outstandingly good hands and perfect form. Also, I was riding the best horse in the barn, a black and white pinto named Royal Pudding. <laughs> he always tried to bite me when I entered his stall, his way of saying hello. <laughs> but riding him was like floating on a cloud. I just had to keep my heels down, my hands soft on the reins, and let him do the rest. My mother and father had stepped away from their volunteer duties to watch me in the show. He had been judging the broad jumps. She was running the fundraising, fundraising grab bag booth. She had gone to Murphy's too and carefully picked out lots of little gifts that would be good for both boys and girls and wrapped them in the prettiest paper she could find. She always had to make things perfect. And, <laughs> and put them in a burlap bag. For 10 cents, a child could reach in and grab a surprise. I, I tried to live up to the kind of perfection my mother expected of me. I was supposed to make up for a lot. Though her circumstances were different now, she never forgot what it felt like to be the daughter of newly arrived immigrants sent at six to a Catholic school. Her mother worked unlike other girls' mothers, and she had no one to teach her how to fit in. The girls snubbed her. She seemed to be always doing something wrong and getting her hands slapped with a ruler by the nuns. One of the many stories she told was that when she was nine years old, her mother, who was a baker, left her alone at Sunday Mass while she delivered a birthday cake. My mother didn't understand Latin, but my grandmother told her she couldn't do anything wrong if she followed what everyone else was doing. When most of the congregation went up to the communion rail and knelt, she did the same thing. She let the priest put the sacred host into her mouth without having been confirmed. Sister Mary Catherine rushed at her and dragged her up the aisle with everyone looking. Sister took her into the bathroom and washed her mouth out with soap, telling my nine-year-old mother that she had committed a sin against God. Now that she had married, my father, she had the position and the means to make me into the girl she had always wanted to be. She would groom me, make me into the kind of girl that gazed coolly at her from photographs and fashion magazines, the young socialite dancing at a ball, a riding to the hunt, a posing on a Louis XVI settee. <laughs> I wanted to please her. I really did. The trouble was, I am and have always been ungroomable. <laughs> Yet, on that day, I was the perfect picture of what she wanted me to be. In my neat jodfurs and polished jodfur boots, white piquet ascot held together with a silver pin, a tweed riding jacket perfectly fitting my slender body and straight back, blonde hair and a page boy, and finally a black velvet hard hat with a bow in the back that cost $40, a lot of money then. I had an acceptably pretty face, blank, unwritten on. My mother loved a blank face. <laughs> Byron, the sixth grade rat killer, <laughs> entered the ring first and took the jumps easily. It would be about form if I were to win. Royal Pudding and I took the first jump with room to spare. I, I thought he was heading for the second jump too fast. My rhythm was off and I hesitated. We were too close to the jump when I suddenly pulled back on his reins, which threw his rhythm off, and he knocked down the top rail. The crowd gasped. I was stunned. I was supposed to win. It took me a moment to realize that it really was over. The judge, who was also our instructor, awarded the first place blue ribbon to Byron Rathschiller, he accepted it with a smug smile. He would be the one to have his name engraved on the silver plate that hung in the school hall. She presented to me the red ribbon for second place. The bright red ribbon felt like fire as I took it from her. 
My hand, my cheeks, everything was burning. You should have won, she said under her breath. Daddy was probably hoping losing would discourage me. He, he thought horseback riding was a waste of time and money. I couldn't look at Mommy, my poor mother, having to pin her hopes on someone like me. Mr. Rothschiller, who my father always called that pompous SOB, <laughs> was patting his rat killer son on the back <laughs> and flashing his politician's smile at everybody. My best friends Bonnie and Pamela were smiling weirdly. I had to get away. I need to cool Royal down, I told them. After taking off his tack and wiping him off, I settled royal pudding into his stall. I laid my head on his shoulder. His blood roaring through him next to my ear sounded angry, filled with recrimination. You should have trusted me. I would have carried you as the way I always do if you hadn't pulled me back, if you hadn't broken my rhythm, if you hadn't trusted, if you had trusted yours. He twitched his withers, twitching me away. We were like two old friends who had let something bad come between us, perhaps something irreparable. I needed to get out of my riding things. There was a change of clothes in our station wagon at the parking lot up the hill. I started to walk, but since the hay wagon was loading up kids for a ride up the same road, I got on. I sat on the back end so I could jump off when it got to the lot. It was so hot. It felt good to take off my hat and dangle my feet in the air. The wagon was pulled by a tractor slow enough for kids to jump off if they needed to. Some kids already had. When we got to the lot, I pushed off. I jumped too soon. I was out of rhythm with the wagon and fell backwards onto the asphalt road, knocked unconscious. My mother was back at the fundraising grab bag booth. The way she tells it, she had a bottle of Coca-Cola in her hand and was opening the bag for a little girl when she saw a very excited group of children running down the hill shouting, Lessie Davis is dead! Lessie Davis is dead! <laughs> I, I dropped my Coke in the grab bag, she said. You made me ruin all the grab bag presents. <laughs> By now, I was conscious with the tractor driver by my side. My mother and father drove me to the hospital, my mother in the back seat keeping me awake. This wouldn't have happened if you kept your helmet on, she told me. I know, I said, as my stomach rose into my throat and I vomited straight into my $40 velvet hard hat with a bow in the back. <laughs> At the hospital, they showed lights into my eyes all night in case I had a concussion, but I was all right and went home in the morning, except that I couldn't stand being home. I couldn't stand being anywhere, being me anywhere. There was an old armchair with its stuffing popping out that my mother stuck in the corner of the kitchen behind some cabinets, a perfect hiding place. I sat, always sat in it to read or whenever I felt sad. I named it the sorrow chair. I stayed curled in the sorrow chair all that day and the next, sobbing as only a 13-year-old girl can sob. My parents gave up on trying to help me. In fairness, they wouldn't have known how. They thought I was crying because I didn't win first place in the horse show. Back then, I thought so too. But what had happened was that a terrible realization had come over me what if I would always and forever do everything wrong, spoil everything, pull back when I should move forward, jump too soon when I should wait? Would I ever find my own life's rhythm, or would I always move to the rhythm of others? How would I know the difference? Could I trust that my life would be good, as I should have trusted royal pudding? who only wanted to carry me on a cloud. In closing up the house in Maryland after my parents died, 
My brother found a box of papers in the closet of my old room and sent them to me in California. I thought it would be fun to go through it with my two grandsons, show them old pictures of me, give them a blast from my past. I was hoping I would find the poster I made for the fair, but I guess I didn't save it. I describe it to them and all the things I had the worms doing. <laughs> worms, grandmother, they can't do those things. Mine could. They roll their eyes the way they do when I tell lame jokes. <laughs> Trying to make them laugh is one of my joys in life. <laughs> Suddenly, I come across the second place Roxeter Horse Show ribbon tucked between some old report cards. I must have saved it, maybe for some reason needing to keep the wound open. <laughs> I pick it up. It no longer burned in my hand. Its stiff, unforgiving silk had become soft. Its tight edges frayed. Its fierce red color faded to a pale rust. I hold it tenderly. It had lived a long life, too. Royal Pudding was performed in December 2016. Uh, what did you learn about yourself rereading Royal Pudding? Um, when I first um, read the piece, mm. I, I, I think I really wanted to distance myself from this girl because I, I didn't like her. <laughs> um, I, well, one thing, I, I, I think I told you that the, I was embarrassed by the piece, and I was trying to figure out what that was. Part of it was that um, here I am, uh, a very privileged girl. I, I'm in a private school. I'm having writing lessons. I'm wearing my $40 velvet hard hat with a bow. Um, Who's going to care about me because, boo-hoo, I didn't win a blue ribbon in a horse show at a little school. Why would anyone care about that? Why do I even care about that? And yet it was devastating. So I, my first instinct was to look back and say, oh, that's, you know, embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I, I, I'm feeling a lot for her now because having reread it, I... I understand more that uh, our feelings, no matter what the circumstances, the feeling was one of deep humiliation. It was one of feeling my life couldn't go on. Mm -hmm. And whatever the story was around that, that was the feeling. And it was very real and very devastating. And then I wondered, I started to, well, I started to think about a lot of things. I started to think about how we might carry, um, we might carry things from our parents and our ancestors even because my mother was, I have it in the story, was humiliated by a nun in church when she was a little girl and felt that same, I know she felt the same way. I know we felt the same feeling. And my father had very critical parents and he could never do anything right. And I feel like, I felt like I could never do anything right. And, I, you know, it, it's almost like I carried so the depth of my pain may have not just been mine. It may have been the pain of many people that I took on. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you in relation to that. You have so much perspective and so much compassion for your mom and her injuries, which were inherited from her mom. What did you do in your life to, or over the course of your life to get that kind of perspective? Well, I, th I think I, I, two things probably say I was a very shy child, and that was, that was a problem, too, because um, my mother would tell me <clears throat> I had no personality, uh, because personality meant being you know, very vivacious and so on. But I, I did love to read, and so I think uh, reading saved me, mm. um, learning about other people, and just life, I guess, just life. Um, 
I began to realize that, uh, I, you know, at 13, I had a, it was two things. I had a lot of grandiosity, like, I'm going to be the only person in the world that's going to do everything right and everything's going to work out for me because it just will because I have my whole life ahead of me and I'm 13. And then the other side was this total despair. I even actually thought I was going to kill myself and took five aspirin. But anyway, I was like, <laughs> but uh, then things don't work out and some things do and um I think I've forgotten what your question how how did, how did I get more perspective you, on that how, how did, did you get, get a how did you get to a place of it sounds like honestly completion and forgiveness um, to, to my mother yeah oh, it took a long time it took a long time it took a long time for her to forgive me too for not being what she wanted me to be it actually I think it was her last years we were in a she was in a nursing home and I in Maryland, and I went out for, for you know, uh, two two periods at two weeks each, and we connected with each other very much then. Um, no, I think I always felt somehow I disappointed them, um, but I had grand, I had children. They loved the grandchildren. You know how it is, and then so you know it was it was okay. And then the other thing that all of us want to know is what happened to the rat killer. I have no idea. <laughs> you don't? I don't care, and I don't know. <laughs> oh, all I remember he was—he was—he was just a little brat. <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. Do you remember the first book that made you go, "Wow"? Hmm. Well, I loved fairy tales, and I had a book of. Um, to uh, the the Hans Christian Andersen and Grimm's fairy tales, and I had a wonderful grandfather who used to read to me too things like Alice in Wonderland, and so I had a picture on my wall that I used to think I could go through, you know, into another world. And I don't know, I I, I yeah, I kind of got lost in books. I I I don't remember. I think I you know I was in kindergarten, and so I had uh, those old uh, Dick and Jane books to read. But the first ones that really you know, connected with me were the fairy tales. Um, do you have a, like a piece of wisdom or any advice that you would have for our listeners or your fellow students or your beautiful friends and neighbors or maybe your grandbabies? I would say I found being curious about the world, being open to the world and people in it, to trust yourselves and know that um, that we are all human beings on this earth and we share so many of the same things and, and to not be ashamed of who you are. Aww. Thanks for coming in, my angel. I love you, Miss Leslie. I love you, too. <laughs> I love you, too. And Miss Lily, too. And Ken, obviously. And Ken. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <I> Ken. <laughs> I'm from here. Here's the story. Well, that about wraps it up, people I love. Sure hope you join us every other Tuesday for original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of real people. I'm Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio and The Townies, Inc., and we are in the business of connecting people one story at a time. The podcast is produced by Lily Brown, Ken Eros, and me, with studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by my best friend, Rain Perry, and it is recorded by her friend, Martin Young, and mastered by her other friend, Mark Hallman, at the Congress House in Austin, Texas. Thank you to today's storytellers and music contributors, to every single donor, listener, supporter, to our board of directors, and to all of the people who stand behind us and inspire us and keep us moving forward, we love you. Molly Allison, Woody Brown, Cleo Charpentier, Patrick Lashley, Asa Larmanth, 
Olivia Lures, Amaury Sogron, and April Theriault. Or April Theriault. And so many more. And April Theriault, I'm going to say her name three times because I keep saying it wrong. (laughs) This podcast was made possible in part by a very generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai. And you can find out more about us and today's storytellers at thetowniespodcast.org. We will see you in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening. Did you see Mary, Queen of Scots? I haven't seen it yet. (sighs) Oh, guys. I was in Tahoe. My entire family, including my Orthodox aunt and uncle, very sexual movie. I didn't know that. Violently sexual. (laughs) (laughs) All of us were looking, like, right under the TV, and we didn't really want to look at each other. Oh, God. So we were just, like, very silent, no commentary. (laughs) We had to shut it off because we were all like, what are we doing? That's the most, I, that's the most uncomfortable thing. It's terrible. We movies. all got up after the movie and did not say anything to, get, like, to anyone and went to bed. <laughs>